Hi, listener. This is From Ideology to Unity, the spiritual journey where we let go of ego and ideological doctrine in favor of meaning, purpose, and unity as a whole. So I'm doing another reading, and this is the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. Tzu, or, yeah, hopefully I pronounced it right, whatever. So, so yeah, this particular version is translated with an introduction by C.G. Lau, uh, and it's published by Penguin Books in Harmonsworth, Middlesex, England. This translation first published in 1963. All right, so let's get on with it. This actually, um, yeah. Seems to be second hand. Uh, but yeah, it doesn't matter how I got this book. Um, okay, so I could read the introduction, but honestly, maybe we'll get on with it. It's, it's the origin of Taoism, or at least the main source on Taoism, anyway. So, which is a philosophy, if not a religion, depends on. I'm not sure if religion, spirituality. Well, anyway, I would say spirituality. And uh, yeah, so there's huh. Actually, there does seem like to be some interesting features here where it just talks about. Okay, so it starts off with some in the introduction <clears throat> with some in, information about the origin of Lao Tzu himself and his name and stuff. That doesn't seem that relevant, but there is information about the differences between now between Taoism and Confucianism, I think. Um Okay, I'll start off here on page 13 of the introduction, which technically isn't the beginning of the text, but yeah. Oh, there's someone at Mozu. There's someone else. Oh, well, I was called to, I felt like reading it, so I'll read it. Mozu probably started life as a Confucian, but gradually became dissatisfied with some of the tenets of Confucianism. He saw that so long as there were duties varying in stringency, there were bound to be discrimination and conflict could not be completely avoided. It may happen that a man has to do something harmful to another because his duty to his parents demands it. To prevent this kind of situation from arising, Mozu advocated love without discrimination. Well, I like the sound of that. That sounds like unconditional love.
A man should love others as himself and also their parents as his own. Mozu placed greater, greater emphasis than later Confucians on the doctrine that men of worth should be on authority. Hmm. So, is Mozu the same as Laozu? I guess not, maybe, but whoever he was, I, I, I agree with that idea of unconditional love anyway sure that's like open heart stuff awakening stuff um also to compare it with confucianism confucianism was also traditional confucius was also traditional as attitude toward to tn heaven heaven for him was vaguely was a vaguely divine presence whose decree it was that men should be moral mo mozu Zhu was of a much more religious turn of mind. His conception of heaven was the closest to a personal God that is to be met with ancient Chinese thought. For him, it is the will of heaven that men should love one another without discrimination, and that those who fail to do so will be punished. Perhaps that's his karma. I'm not sure what that punishment would entail. The attitude of Confucius and Mo Zhu to heaven is something we shall have to bear in mind when we come to examine the concept of the Tao in the Lao Tzu, uh, the Tao being the way. In the case of Yang Chu, unfortunately, we have no exact work representing his school. Oh, I will make uh, a, uh, a brief um, tangent, <laughs> uh, just because it, it comes to mind. So in Warhammer 40k, it's, it's actually quite different from how it really is. Because they've got something called the Tao. The Tao is spelled different, but it's a faction. And they're, they're, they kind of seem like loosely based on the Chinese or something. And it's loosely inspired, like very loosely. Or, But if anything, their approach seems to be more Confucian than it does um, Taoist. Even if they're called Tao, the spell's slightly different. Um, it's not really about the way or balance, it's about some vague conception of the greater good, which where morality is seen as like a obedience to authority, which is much more Confucian, if not out, if not legalist. Anyway, I'll carry on. In the case of Yang Chu, unfortunately, we have no ex extant work representing his school. According to the writings of other thinkers, some of whom were certainly not sympathetic, Yang Chu advocated a thoroughgoing egoism. We shall have occasion to return to this topic and discuss the price nature of this egoism. All we need to say here is that it has been suggested that Lao Tzu represented the development of the school of Yang Chu. Whether we whether this is together justified or not, there are certainly are passages in La Lao Tzu which are best understood in the spirit of Yang Chu's egoism. Such is the background against which the Lao Tzu is to be understood. Now we can't jump to conclusions about what is meant here by egoism. Certainly, the only thing that really springs to mind with egoism, well, one thing is oh, it's being egotistical and following the ego. 
I don't get the impression that's what's being mentioned. The, an alternative is, although this would be Western thought, something more akin to Max Stirner and his egoism, which was more like following your own compass as an individual uh, and only your compass. Which isn't necessarily just being an ego, even if it was, even if it was an atheist. Anyway, um, I'm not going to jump conclusions as to what they mean by egoism. Maybe they'll make it clearer. Maybe they won't. We'll see. In my view, not only is the Laozi an anthology, but it, but even individual chapters are usually made up of shorter passages whose connection with one another is at best tenuous. To deal then with the thought contained in the work is necessary. It is necessary to take those short sections rather than the chapters as units. As the work in its present form must have been compiled by a series of editors out of those short sections. It also follows from our view of the work as an anthology that we cannot expect the thought contained in it to be a closely knit system. Though the greater part of the work may show some common tendency of thought, which can be described as Taoist in the broad sense of the term. Since we cannot expect a high degree of cohesion in the thought, the most sensible way of giving an account is to deal with the various key concepts and to relate them wherever possible, but also to point out inconsistencies when these are obstinately irreconcilable. A good way of starting this account is to select those concepts that were, from early times, associated with the Laozu or the, or the Laozu. It's, it's kind of like the first Laozu is like big T, Z-U, and the second one, or the Lao T, Z-U, but whatever, I, I, I'll just ignore this. Okay, it says in brackets, in Chinese, there's no linguistic distinct distinction between the two. And so it is impossible to know whether it is the man or the book that is referred to when the name Lao Tzu occurs. Ah, oh, okay. Okay. His name or his text. Okay. From the fact that the school of thought is supposed to have been founded by Lao Tzu, is, the school of thought supposed to be founded by Lao Tzu is known as Taoism, Tao Chia, or the school of the way. It can be seen that the Tao was considered the central concept in the thought contained in the Lao Tzu. The opening chapter of the Lao Tzu begins with an important characterization of the Tao. The way that can be spoken of is not the constant way. In other words, the Tao that can be described, cited as authority and praised is not the immutable way. The point is, is repeated in chapter 32. The way is forever nameless. So it's one of these concepts again, it, it always comes off, it almost comes off as a negative theology, this idea that there's something divine and you don't point at it directly, you, you say what it isn't um, and it's clear from the absence um, perhaps because you can't really do the divine justice right and it links to the, if it's if when you if you're in flow when you're present then the way is 
in a sense, the flow of the divine presence. And where that goes isn't set or restricted. It's unlimited. It's unbounded. And yet, it is in harmony, and harmony is in balance and integrates opposites, right? Or at least it's not in duality, it's in unity. And unity, unity isn't going to be just one side or the other of duality, which means the way which is which is neither two, which is neither all chaos or all order, you know, it's going to be, well, anyway, I'm just there pointing to the way. So anyway, the way is not gonna be, the way is the way. <laughs> uh, otherwise you're getting in the way of the way by speaking of the way as being something in particular. <laughs> right. The way conceals itself in being nameless. There is no name that is applicable to the Tao because language is totally inadequate for such a purpose. And yet, if the Tao is to be taught at all, some means, no matter how inadequate, must be found to give an idea of what it is like. This is a difficult task, for even the term Tao is not its proper name, but a name we use for want of something better. And if we insist on characterizing it in some manner, we can only describe it not to together appropriately as great, which is uh, in chapter 25. I, I do feel that it's linked to the concept of presence though, um, or the phenomena of presence. Um, this is something I'm grappling with myself recently, because where's the line between being truly spiritual in the sense of being present and then the I am presence versus spiritual ego using all that spiritual knowledge against itself? Um... I'm still learning in that sense. <clears throat> it is from ego to ideology. Wait. <laughs> oh, for it to have a field day with that. Right. <clears throat> right. <clears throat> right. It's from ideology's unity. So um, it's not, yeah, it's a your journey. So um, my point is I'm, I'm not like, some super present sage, yeah, or something. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I'm gonna, I guess I'll keep them going. The point is, uh, some advice is given today in an email. I'm not sure if it's an automatic email or not, but um, was, you can look at all these different spiritual videos, special breathing techniques and Kundalini yoga and stuff. But what you could do is just close your eyes 
take a deep breath and be more present than you've ever been before. And then, well, there you go. Presence, right? Uh, the more, the idea that you can get more used to being present until you don't, you're present more than you're not present. Anyway, I am actually reading Tao Te Ching and not just randomly rambling, although I'm probably doing a bit both. So, um, yeah, the difficulty of finding appropriate language to describe the Tao lies in the fact that although the Tao was conceived of as that which is responsible for creation, as well as the support of the universe, yet the description the Taoist aimed at was a description in terms of tangible qualities as though the Tao were a concrete thing. In chapter, okay, it's XL11. I, I don't know the what L means in our Roman. Can't remember. Latin. Wow, okay. The way begets one, one begets two, two begets three, three begets myriad creatures. Hmm. Not to jump to conclusions, but okay. So law of one, one, everything starts from one. Then duality is created, but so, and so you get the material reality and the divine reality, I suppose. Although it's all divine technically, right? That's two. Three is, well, there's the Godhead from which it all sprung. There's all the souls that are journaling into the physical reality and then this physical reality itself that's three and from there myriad, myriad, myriad creatures which tend to be the creatures which the many souls which are one of the three are in it's almost like a, a super concise creation story Although here it is said that the way begets one, the one is in fact very often used as another name for the Tao. Wow. So we can see connections here, not necessarily intended, between the law of one and the Tao. It seems that he's pointed to the same thing. And so this presence, the I am, I do suspect that I'm right in that that's what's being referred to. But then again, the presence, the I am, that itself is something which we shouldn't cling to the labels too much of when we refer to it, because even the I am, even presence, they don't really do what it is justice. And as it is with the Tao. Understood this way, we can see that it is the one or the Tao which is responsible for creating as well as supporting the universe. Creating, though the creator, so the infinite creator, source, um, and um, supporting the universe. What well, I mean is maintained, don't For it to even exist at all, there has to be a constant supporting creation maintenance something 
of the universe. Everything is from source, right? Consciousness, infinite energy, consciousness, light. However you put it, it's, it's all from source, right? Anyway, so we've got a quote from the Lao Tzu. Of old there came to be in... Wait, so again. Of old these came to be in possession of the one. Heaven in virtue of the one is limpid. Earth in the virtue of the one is settled. Gods in the virtue of the one have their potencies. The valley in virtue of the one is full. The myriad of creatures in virtue of the one are alive. Lords and princes in virtue of the one became leaders in the empire. It is the one that makes these what they are. The point is pressed home by what immediately follows. Without what makes it limpid, heaven might split. Without what makes it settled, earth might sink. Without what makes them their potencies, God might spend themselves. Without what makes it full, the valley might run dry. Without what keeps them alive, the myriad creatures might perish. Without what makes them leaders, lords, and princes might fall. Now, I think this has more depth to it than simply its words. Um, okay, so, so if everything is created as the same from source, like, a, think of it like rain or like water for an ecosystem, right? What happens when it stops raining? You get drought, you get serious problems, right? Think of it as divine loving presence, divine loving consciousness. If that, it's like a divine water. I think, I think in alchemy, there's a word for it, but I can't remember. It's not primo material, it's something else. I can't remember what it's called. Jung talks about it in, in the ion or something. But anyway, there's this like liquid, divine liquid of that is basically like source, I suppose, right? Think right, that's a metaphor. And so there's this kingdom in the in a big valley. I suppose you can think of it as Egypt or something like that. Like there's this big valley river system, there's and there's a kingdom there. Right. So I don't know, I can't remember what I don't know what limpid means to be honest, but it sounds like a positive word. So without well without connection to source or alignment with service to others essentially, or yeah, without that, heaven might split. So you get more duality that way, unless alignment with the way um, and earth might sink well i wouldn't take this literally but essentially you weren't grounded um well that that's true and even there might even be some sort of calamity occur and um Well, what happens when you're not connected to source? Well, you're not getting sustained. 
constancy. So, so basically, and we are gods because we are all from source, right? We all are source in a sense. That's what souls are. And but souls will spend themselves without being refilled, the cup being refilled. Now, what do servants of self beings do? Well, they do that. They they spend themselves more than they they can't renew it, so they vampirically get it from other souls, essentially. Um, and uh, well, that's what happened if you're disconnected from source, that's kind of the consequence. So, without what makes it full, the valley might run dry, okay? I mean, that applies on an individual level to like beings, but also applies to like uh, the kingdom, let's say, it isn't a valley, and like the or like an ecosystem, the whole thing, like it runs dry drought like a lack of uh sustenance you know so the plants start it, all the life drains from it all the what well, life is love so the love goes and there's desolation and there's pain suffering death I think I've painted the picture pretty clearly. So without what keeps them alive, the myriad creatures might perish. Well, that's what you get in drought, right? Whether it's literal drought or drought of love. Because in a chakra sense, this would be basically a closed heart. Now, what has Earth had, what has humanity had for the last 12,000 years? Generally, closed heart. So what we're coming back into is basically, um, it's not that we haven't had a connection to source, but like it hasn't been the same when we've had these conditions. And the awakening is about return to how it was. <sighs> I have this sense of, am I going away from the towel as I'm reading it? Um, and the answer is, I, I don't know. Um, I'll just flow as much as I can, I guess. If this towel, which is behind the universe, is to be described in physical terms, this is the result. Its upper part is not dazzling. Its lower part is not obscure. Dimly visible, it cannot be named and returns to that which is without substance. This is called the shape that has no shape, the image that is without substance. This is the indistinct and shadowy. Go up to it and you will not see its head. Follow behind it and you'll not see its rear. And as a thing, the way is shadowy and distinct, indistinct and shadowy, yet within it is an image, shadowy and indistinct, yet without it, yet within it is a substance, dim and dark. Yet within it is an essence. This essence is quite genuine. And within it is something that can be tested. And there is a thing confusedly formed, born before heaven and earth, silent and void. It stands alone and does not change, goes round and does not weary. Its source. No, that, that, that bit wasn't it, that's what I added afterwards. Um, 
From these passages, we can see that the entity called the Tao existed before the universe came into being. This, for the author, is, is an absolutely indisputable fact. It has an essence which is genuine, and this genuineness is vouched for by the existence of the universe, which it has produced and continues to sustain. But beyond this, there is nothing we can say about the Tao. The difficulty is indicated by saying that it is shadowy and indistinct, that it is the shape that has no shape, the image that is without substance. It comes to mind that when it comes to iconoclasts, I mean literal iconoclasts, like the, the spiritual movement in the Byzantine Empire, the idea of like icons uh, don't do justice to the divine and getting rid of them for that basis. Um, even I don't agree with being getting rid of icons. I, I there is a point there, um, and it's basically the it's kind of like a negative theology point that you're pointing too much at the divine. You mistake your pointing for the divine. The divine is can't be represented by what's lesser than it. Not truly. You know, for my, sometimes I wonder if maybe I could just like not watch spiritual videos, not like, not like commit myself to ritualistic meditation or anything, just like, just do these readings because <laughs> I love it. So I don't know. All right, I'll carry on. Right. <sighs> um, but beyond this, there was nothing we can say about the town. No, I'll go back slightly. It has an essence which is genuine, and this genuineness is vouched for by the existence of the universe, which is which it has produced and continues to sustain. But beyond this, there is nothing we can say about the town. The difficulty is indicated by saying that it is shadowy and indistinct that it is the shape that has no shape, the image that is without substance. In fact, even to say that it is produced, but even to say that it produced the universe is misleading. It, is, it did not produce the universe in the same way that a father produces a son. Quote, deep, it is like the ancestor of the myriad creatures. It images the forefather of God. the forefather of God. That's interesting. Maybe infinite source rather than just this octave to put it in law one terms. To say that it is like the ancestor of the myriad creatures and that it images the forefather of God is to say that the Tao produced the universe only in the figurative, in a, in a figurative sense. For the difficulty of describing the Tao, there is a traditional interpretation which is quite ancient but for which there was no explicit support to be found in the Lao Tzu itself. 
This is based on the conception of opposite terms, which we shall see play an important part in the thought of the Laozu. If we use a term to describe the attribute of a thing, there is also a term opposite to it, which is suitable for describing the attribute of some other thing. We describe one thing as strong, but also describe another thing as weak. Similarly for the long and the short, the high and the low, and all conceivable pairs of opposites. Now, if we wish to characterize the Tao, we have to use such terms and yet none of them is appropriate. For if the Tao is responsible for the strong being strong, it is no less responsible for the weak being weak. It is argued that in order to be responsible for the strong being strong, the Tao must in some sense be also strong itself, be itself strong also. And yet it would not be true to describe it as strong because it, because as it is equally responsible for the weak being weak, it must in some sense be itself weak as well. What if it's strong weak? That's why that's why in the raw material, often to avoid duality, um, terms are opposites are just literally like said like one slash the other, and it's like that's how it's written out, I think. So it's like like the idea of workplay. Uh, you might have heard me mention it before if you listened to previous episodes. There's this idea of like. Um, well, like, I would hope that that's what I'm doing currently. Um, it's where you're basically an occupation that you love, doing an occupation what you love. Um, it's not mere play, and it's not mere work. It is both of those things, and yet it transcends them. Now, if you keep that in mind about any opposites, any duality, um, that might bring some clarity. Oh, oh, that's an idea. I, in my um, episodes about quantum physics, I've been talking about process one and process two. Now, this has been something which something called realistically interpreted orthodox quantum mechanics, which is according to Henry Stapp. And the um, process one and two is something, I think that, uh, oh, one of those physicists came up with this concept. But anyway, basically process two is a, uh, everything playing out going to like the uh process two is like the universe playing out the programming of the universe right process one is the programmer right or it's like process one is choosing which outcome of the superposition of many possible outcomes is the one that plays out process two is the playing out of the chosen one the chosen outcome, not the chosen one. 
So here's the thing with that. It's great, but there's a duality there, right? One and two. The truth is, well, they operate in a harmonic conjunction. Um, there's a reason why it's law of one and not law of two. In a sense, the three is just as much an illusion. The three kind of indicates that the two, it's just like, it's, I, I've got this idea of like, there's the Godhead and then there's the two divided up that were originally part of the one, but that's all part of one, right? So without process two, all there would be would be the Godhead. Um, all process one and two being side by side is, is essentially the material universe being sustained by source, right? The truth is they are one. I mean, it's the law of one, right? <clears throat> Thus we can see that no term can be applied to the Tao because all terms are specific and the specific, if applied to the Tao, would impose a limitation on the range of its function. And the Tao that is limited in its function can no longer serve as a Tao that sustains a manifold universe. Because after all, it's unlimited, right? Just like you're unlimited. There is no actual textual support for such an interpretation in the Lao Tzu, but in all fairness, it ought to be pointed out that there is nothing in the text which is inconsistent with this interpretation either. Whether it is a correct interpretation of the original intention of the Lao Tzu or not, it is a possible one and has the merit of being interesting philosophically. It forms a striking contrast to the type of metaphysical reasoning in Western tradition of which Plato is a prominent example. According to Plato, the objects of the sensible world are unreal to the extent that it can be said at the same time that any one of them that is both A and, pardon me, at the same time of any of them that is, pardon me again. According to Plato, the objects of the sensible world are unreal to the extent that it can be said at the same time of any one of them that it is both A and not A. There is no object in this world, no matter how round, of which we cannot say at the same time that it is not round. Therefore, it fails to be fully round and, and so truly real. The forms, on the other hand, are truly real because 
it is nonsense to say of the form of roundness that it is not round. What in Plato qualifies the forms for reality is precisely that which would disqualify the Tao from being the immutable way. Maybe? So I have the sense that there's a different way of putting things between Plato and Tao. And it's possible there's a different way of saying the same thing. Because in a sense, you could take You could say that in the material world, what you call the sensible, what Plato called the sensible, of the um, those objects are both a and not a because there's duality there, but simultaneously being recognised that they are that the duality is an illusion, and they are both of the duality because of the duality being an illusion, and that. In the real world, the world of the realm of the forms, um, it, they're just what they are. They're not split into opposites. They're unified as just the true form, that true form being a unified one. And perhaps the, the author of this introduction, perhaps, might be mistaking Plato for making, for being, there might be misunderstanding him. Or maybe not, maybe not, I don't know. Plato's view results in a polarity of forms, each distinct in character from all others, while in the Tower's view, there can be and is only one Tao. The advantage seems to rest with the Taoist, as Plato was, in the end, unable to rest satisfied with a polarity of forms and had to bring in the form of the good as a unifying principle. Although though how this unification was contrived is not at all clear. Again, Plato's insistence that of anything real we must be able to, to make a statement to the exclusion of its contradictory seems to stem from his assumption that the totally real must be totally knowable. Hmm. Here once again, the Taoist takes the opposite position and looks upon the Tao as not an unknowable. As before, the advantage seems to rest with the Taoist. There's no reason for us to assume that the totally real is totally knowable, particularly when the real is thought of as transcendent. Transcendent. <clears throat> I said, you could say that something being unknowable would be a limitation, so. <clears throat> the only, <clears throat> the only drawback in saying that the real is unknowable is that it follows from this truth that it also must be ineffable. And this, the Taoist is quite prepared to accept. There may be some doubt whether the interpretation just set out was the one intended in the, the Lao Tzu. But there is no doubt that in the Lao Tzu, opposite terms are not treated as equally inadequate in 
the description of the Tao. If we take pairs of opposites like something and nothing, the high and the low, the long and the short and so forth, we, we, we can have two classes of each compromising one of the two terms in each pair. We can call something the high and the long, the high, higher terms and nothing, the low and the short, the lower terms. It is clear that in the Lao Tzu, the lower terms are thought of as far more useful at least far less misleading as descriptions of the Tao. For instance, nothing is often seen to indicate the Tao. The myriad creatures in the world are born from something and something from nothing. If source is infinite and unbounded and unlimited, and everything is created from source, by source. But anything in particular is something by being something particular. Then anything particular, anything specified in particular is not nothing. And therefore is something. And therefore isn't the creator. Even the words the creator isn't the creator. Or at least what the creator refers to. What the creator refers to truly is something beyond what we can describe. Um, like I said, negative theology. And so of duality pairs, pairs that are in line with negative theology are actually closer in a sense that parts of the pairs of thinkers of theology as in nothing are closer than something to what it is or rather isn't. Um, we can easily understand why lower terms are preferred for these terms are very often expressed in a negative form. The negative terms have not the same limiting function that positive terms have. And as we have seen, the limiting function that makes specific terms unfit for describing the Tao. Besides nothing, there are other lower terms which are important in the Lao Tzu, but we have to return to them later on. For the time being, it is the use of nothing as an indication of the nature of the Tao that interests us. For this is part and parcel of the difference between the Taoist view and the philosophical views we find in the West. In the Western tradition, up to the beginning of the present century at least, it is genuinely being assumed that only of what exists can be real, and so much of that when, at one time, universals were denied existence, an ad hoc subsistence has to be invented to give them reality. With the Taoists, however, Whatever has existence cannot be real, for whatever exists also suffers from the limitations of the specific. Hmm. Hence it is thought far less misleading to say of the Tao that it is like nothing, though strictly speaking, the Tao can, no more, can be no more like nothing than it is like something. 
And if seems like a contradiction or a paradox, look deeper. The conception of the Tao as the creator of the universe is interesting because as far as we know, this was an innovation of the Warring States period. And the Lao Tzu is one of the works where it is to be found. Traditionally, the role of the crea of creator belonged to heaven, Tien. This was so this was so from the earliest times. Heaven was the term used in the earliest extent works, the Book of Odes and the Book of History. It is a term used in the Analects of Confucius and the Mozu, and continued to be used in the Mencius and even in the Huzunzu, where under the influence of Taoist thought, the term had undergone a significant change in meaning. What is interesting is that even in the Chuangzu, side by side with the Tao, heaven continued to be a key term. This can be seen from the remark that in the Huzunzu, that the that Chang Chuangzu was prevented from realizing the significance of man because of his obsession with the significance of heaven. And this is borne out of the impression one gets from reading the Chuangzu, where heaven is certainly one of the most important concepts, if not the most important. In these works, where the concept of heaven remains central, the term Tao is always used in the sense of the way of something, the way of something, even when it is used without qualifications. In relation to heaven, it means the way that heaven follows. In And in relation to man, it means the way he ought to follow, whether it be in the leading of his own life or in the government of the state. Oh, I see. It's kind of a distortion of it, isn't it? Because it's treating the Tao as a something and thus diverging from the Tao, but calling that divergence from the Tao, the Tao, which doesn't really do justice to Taoism, even though it was supposed to be doing that. So it, it failed in its raison d'etre by diverging from the Tao, which isn't really surprising if that's what it did. In the Lao Tzu, the, the Tao is no longer the way of something, but a completely independent entity and replaces heaven in all its functions. But the Tao is also the way followed by the inanimate universe as well as by man. As such, in reading the Lao Tzu, one sometimes gets the feeling that the line is blurred between the Tao as an entity and the Tao as an abstract principle which is followed. These two are confused because they share in common the characteristic of transcending the senses. This is a confusion not unlike one mentioned in chapter 14. What can be seen is called evanescent. What cannot be heard is called rarefied. What cannot be touched is called minute. These three cannot be fathomed. And so they are confused and looked upon as one. Since the Laozu, since in the Laozu, the term Tao has, to all intents and purposes, replaced heaven, it is curious to note that the phrase the way of heaven occurs a number of times. In some cases, at least, the use of this phrase seems to indicate that the passage belongs to a somewhat different, if not probably earlier tradition. Apart from the apart from two uses in the chapters nine and something 
which are not typical. The phrase occurs only in the last 10 chapters, in some of which the ideas contained seem to be contrary to the view taken of the Tao and the Lao Tzu generally. In chapter something, uh, we find, is not the way of heaven like stretching of a bow? The high it presses down, the low it lifts up, the excessive it takes from, the deficient it gives to. It is the way of heaven to take from which, it is the way of heaven to take from what has excess in order to make good or what is deficient. Oh, wow. Pardon me. It's just, <laughs> I've got an itch. <laughs> and it's kind of distracting. <laughs> oh, oh dear. Right. Right. So um, then in chapter, I can't read that. Uh, mostly because I just don't know. Oh, whatever. I'll, I'll, I'm not going to worry about it. In a certain chapter, anyway. <clears throat> Quote, it is the way of heaven to show no favoritism. It is forever on the side of the good man. In these passages, heaven is conceived of as taking an active hand in redressing the inequities of this world. It is always on the side of the good and the oppressed. This runs contrary to the view of the Tao generally to be found in the book as something non-personal and amoral. In replacing the concept of heaven by that of the Tao, although the Lao Tzu sets itself apart from most ancient works, including to some extent the Chuangzu, it is by no means unique. In this respect, it shows a certain affinity with a group of chapters 12, 20, 12, 36 to 38 and 49 in the Quanzu, another work, probably of the same period, which is also an anthology of earlier writings. These chapters have in recent years been considered by some scholars as representing the teachers of the school of Sung Kang, Kang and Win, Yin Wen. Sung Kang is certainly mentioned both in Mencius and Sun Yu and probably the same as Sung Jung Su mentioned in Zhu. There is no doubt that in strong opposition to war and in his attempt to persuade people that they do not in fact desire much, he was very close to the Mohist school. Yet in biographical chapter of the Han Shu, History of the Western Han Dynasty by Pan Ku, AD 32 to 92. The comment on Sun Ketan is that he advocated views of Huang and Lao, in other words, Taoist views. This seems to be an indication that there was some connection between early Taoist schools and the later Moists. Although in Lao Tzu, the Tao, which replaces heaven, has ceased to be an intelligence and to be moral, nonetheless, Lao Tzu continued in the tradition that man should model his behavior on heaven. Only here he is urged to model himself on the Tao. In order to do this, we, we must first find out how the Tao functions. Although the Tao is said to leave nothing undone by resorting to no action, there, is, there are indications of how it works. Well, I suppose what we could do, I don't know if the how in line with the Tao is in this truly really is, but what we could do is 
we could, in a sense, I don't know about reduce it to the tau, but we could say, the will of heaven is the tau, but still focused on the tau generally. But then why mention the will of heaven? Maybe so that those who pay attention to the idea of heaven realize that it is, after all, just a Tao. Maybe. Anyway, quote, turning back is how the way moves. Weakness is the means the way employs. This sums up the way the Tao functions, that weakness in other kindred conceptions are important in the Lao Tzu can be seen from the way the thought of the Lao Tzu is summed up in two works. In the Lu Shi, I, I'm probably mispronouncing this, but in the Lu Shi Jun Tri Ju, it, it is something like that. It is said that the Lao Tan valued the submissive Ju while in the Sun Tzu, it is said that the Lao Tzu saw the value of the bent, but not that of the straight. The weak, the submissive, the bent, these are important qualities in the Lao Tzu because these are the qualities the Tao and have exhibits. I see this as like the idea of a blade of grass bending in the wind. It's like a flexibility and adaptability. It's not forcing, but rather moving with, moving with the universe, right? Or something like that. <laughs> the movement of the Tao was described as turning back this is usually interpreted as meaning that the Tao causes all things to undergo a process of cyclic change. Ah, okay. What is weak inevitably develops into something strong. But when this is the process of the but when this process of development reaches its limit, the opposite process of decline sets in, and what is strong once again becomes something weak. And decline reaches its lowest point only to give way once more to development. Thus, there is an endless cycle of development and decline. Here's the thing. What is learnt on a soul level can never truly be unlearned. Or at least a reason for something. When you become aware of something, you can never truly become unaware of it. That's something Aaron Abke told me anyway. So, um, I suggest that if you've got this turning wheel that keeps repeating itself, right? Development, and then think of the hero's journey, right? Um, starts off weak, develops the strength, dark night of the soul or whatever. Um, that's the point of weakness. Again, so weak, strong, weak, strong weak and this cycle repeats itself right 
But then, or maybe you could say just from weak, strong to weak, yeah, basically. So you go through the cycle from to strong, weak to strong to weak again. And then even though you repeat it, because you have raised awareness in the whole process of the last cycle, technically you can see it as spiraling up in an upward trajectory, even though it's repeating the circle, repeating itself. So that's an interesting concept anyway. I wonder if I'm actually going to uh, be reading from the um, the actual text in this episode. Uh, we'll see, we'll see. So, um, Yeah, thus there is an endless cycle of development and decline. There is a further story concerning the submissive and the weak, which is equally prominent in the Lao Tzu. The submissive and the weak overcome the hard and the strong. Again, this is usually given a cyclical interpretation which links up with that theory of change. The weak overcomes the strong, and in doing so, it becomes strong itself, and so falls victim in turn to the weak. The whole interpretation seems reasonable enough at first sight, but as soon as we look more carefully to the value of the submissive and the weak, we become aware of certain difficulties. The precept in the Lao Tzu is that we should hold fast to the submissive. But is this a precept tenable in the cyclical interpretation, correct? If we are exhorted to hold fast to the submissive because in conflict with the hard and the submissive, it is the latter which is most triumphant, is it? Is not this triumphant short-lived if the submissive becomes hard in the hour of its triumph? Also, I'm wondering, it's something specific. Weakness, it's something specific. And if you stick to something specific and you don't move away from it, that seems like it's not the Tao, to me anyway. If this, if true, makes it impossible to put the precept into practice. Moreover, if the change, if change is cyclic and a thing that reaches the limit in one direction will revert in the opposite direction, then the precept is both useless and impractical. It is useless both in development and decline if both development and decline are inevitable, since the purpose is, in the first instance, to avoid decline. And, and impractical if it advocates that we should remain stationary in a world of an export and incessant change. But, but I'm wondering, I'm just wondering, what if there's a solution to this issue and it's the idea of spiraling? Yes, it's a cyclical process, the up and the down. Um, if it's wave and frequency and energy, right? It goes up, down, up, down, up, down, right? And you go through this overall process and that trajectory of this up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down might be going in a good direction, whatever that means. But it's still going, it'll still have downs in it. I'm gonna still have ups in it. That's just part of it, right? And if you think about it, this 
a circle that repeats itself going up, down, up, down, up, down, and a graph or frequency going up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. And everything has frequency, has energy, everything is energetic. Then in that case, surely, and if you don't really truly, if you gain awareness, you don't truly lose it, you learn something, you gain experience as soul, as source in a sense, you never truly lose it. Even if you forget on an egoic level, you don't truly forget, right? So, and isn't this constant movement of ever more to the light, ever more If the journey is infinite in this reality, um, ever more, if we're getting ever more experience, then to me, it suggests the idea, yes, that you may well be going around another cycle of, let's say, the hero's journey. Uh, or you may have gone up and then down and then be doing it again but it's not the same because you've learned things. So it's just a different, it's playing out different each time. So maybe, yeah, you're going around in a circle again, but it's not at the same point. You're not just repeating the same old stuff, but it's as below, so above, as above, so below. That's a law of correspondence. So you get the same patterns at different points in space and time, right? Different levels of space and time or whatever, right? But the same in everywhere, you get the same patterns repeating, but they repeat in different manifestations. Right? And so, just as it repeats itself in a cyclical manner, that cyclical manner isn't really repeating itself. It's, and if you consider the Tao is always moving, always changing, never staying the same. It so even the cycle isn't staying the same, right? So if the cycle which the Tao follows isn't staying the same, that means it changes the manifestation of the cycle. Yeah, it keeps cycling, but it's but it's always changing because I mean source consciousness souls always gaining experience and it's all in flux right so and why would it be limited um why would it be limited to just a repeating cycle what if instead everything cyclical or in frequency but not limited in that sense because it plays out in different ways Hopefully, I'm onto something there here, but uh, it seems to make sense to me. Um, yeah, I'll carry on. I'll carry on. But perhaps, perhaps I've got a solution here. Perhaps there's a solution here to what this author doesn't realize. Maybe not. Maybe not. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to lay claim to being right on this. It's just like, just resonates with me.
Moreover, if change is cyclic and a thing that reaches the limit in one direction will revert in the opposite direction, then the precept is both useless and impractical. It is useless both if both development and decline are inevitable, since the purpose is in the first instance to avoid decline and, and impractical if the advocates, if it advocates that we should remain stationary in a world of inexorable and incessant change. At this precept of holding fast to the submissive seems central to the teachings of the Lao Tzu, then it is the cyclical interpretation that has to be given up. Or is it? The necessity, the necessary then, it is necessary then to reinterpret both the process of change and the nature of the victory the submissive gains over the hard. First, in the line, turning back is how the way moves. We notice that the term is used turning back. To turn back is to return to one's roots. And one's roots are, of course, the submissive and the weak. All that is said is that a thing, once it has reached the limits of its affirmance, will return to its roots, i.e. will decline. This is inevitable. Nothing is said about the development being equally inevitable once it has returned to one's roots. In other words, it is never said that the process of change is cyclic. In fact, not only is development not inevitable, it is a slow and gradual process, every step of which has to be sustained by deliberate, deliberate effort. Doesn't sound like the way to me. Development and decline are totally different in nature. Development is slow and gradual. Decline is quick and abrupt. Development can only be achieved by deliberate effort. Decline comes about naturally and inexorably. Rather than a merry-go-round, the process of change is like a children's slide. One climbs laboriously to the top only, but once over the edge, the downward movement is quick, abrupt, inevitable, and complete. You know, I have a sense that the kind of got a point but they're kind of missing the point um that really seems limited this what they're saying it's not this bit of it isn't resonating with me it's not i don't know about you i prefer the spiral and frequency way of looking at it uh One can follow the precept by refusing to make the effort necessary for development in its usual circumstances by making a positive effort to defeat such development. A poor man can remain poor simply by not making the effort to acquire wealth. But should he be left against his will, a large legacy by a non-Taoist uncle, he can still stubbornly hold on to his poverty by giving the money away. The point of holding fast to the submissive is to avoid the fall should one become hard, for in a fall, whether from wealth or from power, one tends, at least in the turbulent times of the Roaring States period, to lose one's life into the bargain. This is the reason for advocating that one should both know contentment and know when to stop. Know contentment and you will suffer no disgrace. Know when to stop and you will meet with no danger. You can then endure. There's another one. He who knows contentment is rich. Um, this point is more forcibly in chapter something. There is no crime greater than having too many desires. There is no disaster greater than being not being content. There is no misfortune greater 
than being covetous. Although development is an uphill climb, which needs deliberate, deliberate effort to sustain it every step, the impulse to such effort is great and universally present in man. Man is egged on by desire and covetous to be ever wanting greater gratification. So it is necessary to counter its natural tendencies by the lessons of knowing contentment and knowing when to stop. Not only when a man realizes that he is enough, can he learn not to aim at winning greater wealth and more exalted rank, the ceaseless pursuit of which will, own, will end only in disaster. It is, after all, egoic and not the way. There is still a bit the victory of the submissive and the weak over the hard and the strong to be explained in a way consistent with the precept of holding fast to the submissive. The explanation lies in the fact that in achieving victory over the hard and the strong, the submissive and the weak do not become their opposites. In order to understand this, we must bear, them, bear in mind the, the fact that the loud in the Lao Tzu, a term is often used in two senses, the ordinary and the Taoist. Victory is such a term. In the ordinary sense of the word, it is a strong that gains victory over the weak. In this sense, victory cannot be guaranteed indefinitely. As however strong a thing is, it is inevitable that one day it will meet with more than its match. The Taoist sense of the word victory, in contrast, is rather paradoxical. The weak does not contend. And so no one in the world can pick quarrel with it. If, ne if one never contends, this at least ensures that one never suffers defeat. One may even wear down the resistance of one's stronger opponent by this passive weapon of non-contention, or at least wait for him to meet with defeat at the hands of stone stronger. It is in this sense that the submissive and the weak gain victory over the hard and the strong. To hold fast to the submissive is called strength. The virtue of non-contention enables a man to defeat his enemy without joining issue. There are many passages in praise of this virtue of non-contention. It is because he does not contend that no man in the empire is in a position to contend with him. It is because he does not contend that it is never at fault. As we have seen, the value of the Taoist precept of holding fast as a submissive lies in its usefulness as a means of, to survival. Does it? Is survival what matters? Hmm, I'm not sure about this. This being the case, we may feel that Lao Tzu attaches undue importance to survival. This feeling shows that we have not succeeded in understanding the environment that produces that produced the hopes and fears which are crystallized into a precept. I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like it's based on hope. I don't feel like it's based on fear. I mean, maybe that's my preconception, but uh, it sounds like we're getting the, uh, the author of the introduction's preconceptions here. Okay, there's some stuff I disagree with here, but I'll skip that and uh, I'll go to here. 
There are a number of pacifist passages in the Lao Tzu where one can detect a passionate concern for the lot of the common man in times of war. Arms are instrument of ill omen. When great numbers of people are killed, one should weep over them with sorrow. When victorious in war, one should observe the rites of mourning. Again, where troops have encamped, there will be bra there will brambles grow. In the wake of a mighty army, bad harvests follow without fail. The use of arms is desperately is a desperate remedy, and one should resort to it only when there is no choice. And of two sides raising arms against each other, it is one that is sorrow stricken that wins. Though perhaps there's an understanding of life and death. that one can deal with death easier, but that's not to take it lightly. And I suppose that's the important thing. It wasn't being taken lightly by in Taoism. There also is a solemn warning to the, to the rulers that if the people are relentlessly oppressed when it comes to a point when they might not even wish to survive, there comes a point where they might not even wish to survive. When that happens, the ruler will find himself robbed of the only effective tool of oppression. Now that's a good point. If the conditions of living become not that different from being dead, there's no reason to follow them because the threat of death is no longer a threat. There's no longer an incentive. Like, there's, there's no incentive to follow it anymore because it's like, people would be like, well, if you kill me, uh, you know, it, it's, I think you know what I mean, right? When people are not afraid of death, wherefore frighten them with death? Wherefore frighten them with, yeah. Moreover, if a time ever comes when people no longer fear death, then something terrible will happen and will not be the people alone who will suffer. The ruler will perish with them. When the people lack a proper sense of awe, proper, then some awful visitation will descend upon them. Hmm. Anyway. Hmm. I don't entirely agree with the interpretation of Taoism here. So I'm just uh, re skimming to get to a point where. The sage is, is first and foremost a man who understands the Tao. And if he understands also to be a ruler, he can understand, he applies understanding of the Tao to government. Although we're getting a point where in this awakening, it's no longer about government, it's about people governing themselves. 
Um, I just don't see there being government in 5D, or at least not in the same sense. Um, I see decentralization and... I mean, technically we're already in it, we're just not... Frequencies haven't risen to meet it yet. Um, so it does seem the time for me, because even if I feel like a stateless society wasn't really feasible in 3D, it's feasible in 5D, so what some may call anarchy is the way now, um, I would say. And, and I don't mean that in an overly political, doctrinal, dogmatic sense. What I mean is in the sense, in a practical sense of just people, people growing their own, doing various different things all these things that we rely on for, but we've been relying on corporations and state for, finding ways to do those things ourselves and to build systems, self-sustaining systems that can, well, continue even while the established systems of the state established and ossifying or maybe gradually falling apart uh, systems of the collapsing order, whether it's the corporate side of it or the state side of it, as the collapse occurs, parallel, these new systems established in parallel can continue and sustain themselves and flourish, right? And so the idea is, laying the seeds of what comes next before what is in place has truly fallen. So it's basically, yeah, it, it's time to begin. Um, I don't know how long it will be until we until we see we really see um, everyone's at five in five D. But we might as well get on with doing things ourselves rather than relying on those you aren't. And those systems that aren't for our best, for our best interest. So, yeah. And while I, I I do see that Taoism might have benefits for those in government, I wow. Uh, yeah, um, I do see that. Um, yeah, it's a. Uh, there's more benefit in those who is, who seek to do things themselves in looking for how to apply towers and precepts, perhaps. So when it says, the knowledge of the tower makes the sage a good ruler because the government of the people should be modeled in the way of the mirrored creatures of the universe, the way that the mirrored creatures in the universe are ruled by the tower. What if we replace 
a good ruler and government with um, okay uh, well, I suppose self-government self self-governance um, right and essentially us doing things ourselves without relying on it and applying or, yeah yeah applying thousand to that i suppose we have seen that the term nothing woo is sometimes used for the towel because if we must characterize the towel by one pair of opposite terms, the negative is preferable because it is less misleading. It follows that as nothing is preferable to something, we are, so are other negative terms to their positive opposites. Two of these negative terms are central to the Taoist theory of the function of the ruler. The first is the Wu Wei, the second is the Wu Ming. Wu Wei literally means without action and Wu Ming means, means and Wu Ming without name. These terms can be coined probably because these are phrases which Wu, not to have, and so nothing, forms of the, forms the first element. This does not mean that the connection between Wu Wei and Wu Ming, on the other hand, and Wu on the other, no, the connection between Wu Wei and Wu Ming on one hand and Wu on the other is a purely linguistic one. They are, like Wu, negative terms. What makes a woo a suitable term for describing the Tao makes these terms suitable as well. To say of the Tao that it acts to the limit of its effectiveness because merely by doing some things it must by implication leave other things undone. Everything's a trade-off, right? Wait, that sounds like an imitation. Maybe not. Um, to say that it does not act, at least le le leaves it untrampled, trampled. No, no special relation exists between the Tao and certain affairs to the exclusion of others. The way never acts and yet nothing is left undone. So what is acting, what is, what is things being undone without action? It's basically, Things not being undone, but without action being taken, is essentially the way being followed and not ego. Presence, not ego, right? The passage goes on to say that should laws and princes be able to hold fast to it, the myriad creatures will be transformed of their own accord. And uh, what if these laws, what if we interpret these laws and princes as everyone in a self-sustainable community on equal terms? And we just use prince and princes just to apply to everyone, right? Then Technically, it's the same phrasing, it just it's transformed. This is a clear, so yeah. Yeah, so that's a really uh, way of transforming, turning on its head. 
This is a clear statement that the ruler should model himself on the town and follow the policy of resorting to no action. Yes, the ruler being every individual in the collective commune, whatever the fuck, uh, the, the, the community, the community. Wow, am I sound like a communist? <laughs> uh, I'm not. I mean, some people have referred to like the law of one as like communism. I, I don't really think you can really apply like 3D concepts to it, especially materialist concepts to it. Um, and certainly they may see it as what they advocate as um, non-imposed, but it's not. And so, whereas the difference is the law of one generally isn't imposed. I mean, if it's imposed, it's not the law of one, or at least it's not service to others. So, but the thing is, if someone views the law of one as basically communism, they're free to. And it's not like a problem if they have that view. This is my view that it's not, but. I mean, if communists are attracted to the idea of the law of one by viewing it as communist, then great. That means more people following the law of one. But <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm, that's a tangent. It's a tangent. It's a tangent of a tangent. Of a tangent. I do that. So, um, <sighs> um, Right, I'll, I'll move on to the next quote. There's another quote. In governing pe the people, the sage empties their minds but fills their bellies, weakens their wills but strengthens their bones. He always keeps them innocent of knowledge and free from desire and ensures that the clever men never dare to act. Something feels off about that. You see, when you apply Taoism to rulers, it almost seems almost a little bit manipulative. Now, there was actually a Taoist Chinese dynasty. Um, I can't remember which one it was on the top of my head. It's possible that it was one of the preferable ones, but was it oppressive? Probably. Maybe it was less oppressive. Which one was it? It was like kind of in the Middle Ages or kind of in the Dark Ages, or at least the Dark Ages in the West. It was like, um, I can't remember which one it was called. Um, was it a bit later? No, I, I can't remember which one Justinity was. Sorry, I, I wish I knew what we're called. But here's the thing. If if we're referring to self-government or, or governance of people in, e in a community on an equal basis, emptying their minds, as in not being an ego, um, but their bellies being filled, I mean, it would be, right? Um, weakens their wheels and strengthens those. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, that doesn't really resonate with me. Ensuring that the clever never dare to act I mean, that's like, 
you know, preventing dissent. I suppose if you apply it to like an empire back in like ancient times, I guess maybe it's not really avoidable, but that's not the situation we're in. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Oh, there's something else. The sage, in his attempt to distract the mind of the empire, seeks to urgently to muddle it. The people have all have something to occupy their eyes and ears, and the sage treats them all like children. The aim of the sage is to keep the people in a childlike state where there is no knowledge and so no desire beyond the immediate objects of the senses. That sounds like Brave New World by Huxley. Doesn't sound good at all. Wow. Uh, in connection with the freedom or from desire, it is necessary to say something about the uncarved block. There may be other implications of the symbol, but there are but there are two features which stand out prominently. Firstly, the uncarved block is in a state as yet untouched by the artificial interference of human ingenuity. And so it is a symbol from the original state of man, therefore, before desire is produced in him by artificial means. By holding firmly to the principle of non-action exhibited by the Tao, the ruler will be able to transform the people. But after they are transformed, should they dare... No, I was misreading, but yeah. Should they desire to raise its head, I shall press it down with the weight of the nameless uncarved block. The nameless uncarved block is but freedom from desire. And if I cease to desire and remain still, the empire will be a piece of its own accord. Although, you know, for all my, for everything he's saying about like how it seems a bit authoritarian, there's a way in which um, if we were to look at a medieval ancient society back then, and if it were, if a more gentle touch, lighter touch were taken, um, but those who sought to rise up or rebel or whatever were put down, like, technically speaking, that might be more harmonious in certain sense than, like, really high taxes and um, lots of warfare and other unharmonious things going on. And then like rebellions and those, like, everything just being like messy like that. Lots of corruption, you know, that, that would be a problem. Um, and that certainly wouldn't be a harmonious and lots of people would die and suffer and there'd be warlordism going on. So, like, I, I kind of get that there's a point there that isn't fucked up, but at the same time, it does sound fucked up in its own way. So, I don't think we need to only interpret it in one way. Um, hmm. All right, all right. Although, I'll tell you what, I did think of something. 
think of another way to interpret all this, something's coming to mind. Now, I've started recently uh, playing with runes, Norse runes, like these stones, you've got these stones with like these different runes on them, and I've got a book that says what the different runes mean. Eventually I'll stop using the book when I get understand what the runes are runes enough, right? Now, technically speaking, I don't think it's like viewing it as external to myself, but rather it's like when you're not, it's like a, a way, I, the way I see divination is it's probably best to do it yourself. And in a sense with your own I am presence. Um, and you can, I have a sense that you can, get insight beyond your frequency beyond where you're at currently by connecting to your i am presence within through it now there is this um i'll get a certain stone because there's one stone in particular that if you're on youtube you're a bit, or something you'll be able to see it but otherwise you won't i won't be out but there's one stone in particular like for example there's there were regular ones that they have like wait a symbol on them like that for example right but there's one stone in particular that has nothing like just nothing if i can find it oh there it is you see now what was being mentioned what was being mentioned? The uncarved block. Seemed like an uncarved block to me. Um, untouched by artificial interference of human ingenuity and so a symbol of the original state of man before desire is produced in him by artificial means. At least it might mean people being less egoic, maybe. So there is a use in having that there, and I do actually, I don't ignore it when I'm eating, so I do try to see what that might tell me in relation to the other things. It's like a joke with a pack. Hmm. Secondly, the uncarved block is said to be nameless. This, as we have said, is one of the most important attributes of the ruler. Although a faceless ruler, I mean, being ruled by tyrannical AI might be like that. So I don't know, like there's a light and dark side of this, what I'm reading. When the uncarved block shatters, it becomes vessels. The sage makes use of these and becomes the Lord over the officials. Hmm. You know, I'm starting to get the sense that I might want to start reading from the actual text. There has been useful insight from this introduction for sure, but it has its, it has its own biases. Um, Hmm. 
But there are some things I like. For example, this quote he has here. Desiring to rule over the people, one must, in one's words, humble oneself before them. And desiring to lead the people, one must, in one's person, follow behind them. Interesting. These passages seem to support the charge only so long as we have the preconceived notion that Lao Tzu advocates the use of scheming methods. But if we approach them with an open mind, we begin to see that there need not be anything sinister about what is said, which is no more than this. Even if a ruler were to aim at realizing his own ends, he can only hope to succeed by pursuing the ends of the people. If he values his own person, he can only serve them at his can only serve its best interest by treating it as extraneous to himself. What is here said about the realization of the ruler's private ends is reminiscent of what is sometimes said about the pursuit of happiness. A man can achieve his own happiness only by pursuing the happiness of others, because it is only by forgetting about his own happiness that he can become happy. This has never been looked upon as sinister as a sinister theory, no more than the theory of Lao Tzu. It is not said in the passages quoted that the ruler should pursue his own ends at the expense of the people. This would indeed be a vicious view, but that is precisely what is said here, by implication not to be possible, even if one were to grant that, is, that, that it is desirable. In fact, true selfishness is a very rare thing, and when it is found in a man, it makes him eminently suitable to be a ruler? A truly selfish man is one who would not allow excessive indulgence in the good things in life to harm his body. Such a person is unlikely to take advantage of the people for the sake of gratifying his own desires were he made a ruler. I don't know. Is that selfish? Would they do that? I'm not sure. But what I did get from the previous bit was what I got was this idea that well, if we were to apply this principle of, well, a man can achieve his own happiness only by pursuing the happiness of others because it is only by forgetting about his own happiness that he can become happy. That sounds like service to others. Um, if one sees others as ex as part of oneself and oneself as part of others if, if one sees one things in a holistic sense and oneself as part of a whole of others then um we pursue the ends of the people or the community or each other and by doing that we best well um, we flourish we have abundance that way um, and even if you conceive of if someone were to be a ruler and they had to be a ruler they're in this position they're a ruler they have to do this what would you want them to do well ideally do the best they can for the 
well-being, prosperity, and liberty, and so forth of the people, right? Even if at, we're at a stage where self-governance seems to be more what we're moving into. Hmm. Now, skimming ahead for a bit. Um, well, there's quite a long introduction, huh? Wait, how long is this? Actually, we're coming to the end now. Um, sort of. Hmm. Hmm. You see, the, the silence that you hear, or I'm not saying anything, that's the way. It's an absence, right? So maybe I can podcast best by just not saying anything. No, <clears throat> no, right. Um, um, wow. Thanks for your patience. <laughs> hmm. I feel like I might want to. Oh, what's the way? What'd be the way? Right, well, I've got to a point where I'm at the end of the introduction. So, hmm, I feel like I'd like to give you a little bit of this and then I'll finish off. But so, this is a, uh, I'll get to it then. This is beginning of chapter one. I'll just read. Uh, the way that can be spoken of is not the constant way. The name that can be named is not the constant name. The nameless was the beginning of heaven and earth. The named was the mother of the myriad creatures. Hence, always rid yourself of desires in order to observe its secrets. But always allow yourself to have desires in order to observe its manifestations. These two are the same, but they verge in name in the name they issue forth. Being the same, they are called mysteries, mystery upon mystery, the gateway of the manifold secrets. So oh, it says, in translating from Chinese, it is often impossible to avoid using certain pronouns it and they. I won't bother with that. Um, Asterisk section at the bottom there. Right, so I get from this. It's not a constant thing. So if you specify a name as if it's just a constant thing that is just X, well, that's not the way. That's a label that you're calling the way. After all, it is unlimited, it is boundless, it is 
Unlimited and boundless is our negative theology ways of describing it, which are useful, I would say. The nameless was the beginning of heaven and earth. Sounds about right. The named was the mother of the myriad creatures. Which are the created, but the source that inhabits the myriad creatures is and sustains it is the way it's unlimited that and that is remember we are not our flesh suits right the mere creatures are flesh suits um that's the material right now we are infinite beings living temporary existences these in our incarnation we have bodies but those bodies physical bodies that we have are not us the spirit body the the source the i am that we are is us we are the nameless and we are not the named the myriad creatures are named and are not us understand now if you try to rid yourself of desires that's not the way but if you go with all your desires that's not the way right um allowance acceptance allowing something but to allow always allow yourself to have desires it's allowance in order to observe observation is modern observe yourself observe the manifestations in order to observe its manifestations the manifestations of your desires so yeah makes sense makes sense and these two are the same I don't know what two things are the same. Um, the desires and the manifestations are the same? I don't know. But the virgin in name as they issue forth, being the same, they are called mysteries. Mystery upon mystery, the gateway of manifold secrets. What is the gateway of manifold secrets? Perhaps it's the nameless. Two, the whole world recognizes the beautiful as the beautiful, yet this is only the ugly. The whole world recognizes the good as good, yet this is only the bad. Thus something and nothing produce each other. The difficult and the easy complement each other, the long and the short offset each other. 
The high and the low incline towards each other, note and sound harmonize with another, before and after follow each other. Therefore the sage keeps to the dead, that's not what it says. Therefore the sage keeps to the deed that consists in taking no action and practicing the teaching that uses no words. The myriad creatures rise from it, yet it claims no authority. It gives them life, yet claims no possession. It benefits them, yet exacts no gratitude. It accomplishes its task, yet it lays claim to no merit. It is because it lays claim to no merit that merit never deserts it. It seems to be discussing the distinction perhaps between being present and being an ego. Um, now I suspect that's ultimately what's being discussed in Taoism because the way is being present in the I am, I, I suppose, and it's ego that takes us away from the way. If it's our way, it's not the way because our way is a particular way. Hmm. Yeah. Why and why do you why we claim to merit? Because to lay claim to merit is to seek to seek something, it's as if it's not already there. So why Why pretend the merit's not there and seek to gain what's already there? Raises a question about seeking to be present, doesn't it? Because if you're trying to be present, you're trying to get what you already have instead of ceasing to get in the way and is it even in seeking to get in the way you might view not getting in the way of your own my own presence as something to get and that itself is tripping yourself up basically right I feel like that's kind of where I'm at in a way. So, what would you love to do? What does the silence say? Not that chitter chatter noise inside. What does the quiet voice say? What does the nameless say? It might not be with words. Where are you called to? Without sound. Where do you see? What do you see without sight? 
what do you smell without smell? <laughs> like, what do you sense without sensing? Well, what is... What do you truly want? Now, do that. Why do anything else? It can all be so complicated, all this spiritual seeking. I know that. I've been engaging on the complication. Oh, you do this technique and that technique and do this meditation. You must do it every day. Maybe I... I'm sure like there's benefit from regularly doing like meditative practices and stuff. The thing is like, it's so easy for ego to get involved with that. So, I mean, there's nothing, no reason to hold yourself back or to get in your do we, there's no reason to hold yourself back from meditative practices and such. But there's no reason to try to do it. Because the way, the presence, the being, it's doing without trying. It's doing without Force. You don't need to push yourself to do it. Take away the push, and that's what you do. It's not the, the loud pushing, chattering. It's the doing that is done without that, right? Intuition, well, as a name, but it it's a, an indication, perhaps, of what it is. The way is... In particular... It's like, allow yourself to be drawn by yourself into action that you don't know what it is while you're doing it because you're not thinking it through. And I wasn't sure before I was recording this, if I wanted, if the way, oh, if the, um, if it was ego or not that I wanted to. So, I decided that it was not decided that I was going to do it and only do it if that's what I ended up doing. And to feel out, not even feel out, just like see where I drew myself, see where in the present I was going. And it just seemed like this little subtle tug one step at a time seemed to be, you know, I was here, I was sitting down in front of my computer. It was like, and I just felt the sense of being tugged around. 
not tug, no, no, not even tug. Just like this little string, just like this little touch pulling in a certain direction, just very, very slightly. And it was, it wasn't the, I could do this, I could do that. Oh, the, thinking this, I, oh yeah, that, that's appearing because this and this. No, it was just, that was all your stuff. No, it was just, this way. Um, and, and it wasn't, but there wasn't sound, there wasn't words. It was just like, one thing to another, but without naming to myself what I was doing, um, without limiting myself to deciding. Because um, that is to name and that is to limit, right? I, I was trying. If, was I trying? Well, I, I had a desire to be present. I don't know how if I pulled it off or not, but maybe, maybe it was a step in the right direction. I don't know. Um, in a sense, I was trying to, trying out the way before I've had this book, and that's what led me to choosing this one. Somehow I felt drawn to a certain shelf and then to this one and then to do it. Um, it is funner not thinking things through as much. It really is. So, um, okay, I'll do three. Not to honor men of worth will keep the people from contention. Not to value goods which are hard to come by will keep them from theft. Not to display what is desirable will keep them from being unsettled of mind. Therefore, in governing the people, the sage empties their minds but fills their body, bellies, weakens their wills but strengthens their, bo strengthens their bones. He always keeps them innocent of knowledge and free from desire and ensures that the clever never dare to act. Do that which consists in taking no action and order will prevail. No action. Suppose we treat this as government of yourself, of your body, of your life from an individual point of perspective. Now, technically all is one. so. That's not truly how it is. But if we do that, then, then it's almost like your relationship with your ego, right? If it was more harmonious, it would be Honor the worthy and be content. Don't find you the hard to come by. And not steal, you won't steal. 
don't if you don't display what is desirable you won't be unsettled in mind so if you're not focusing on what's not desirable for you or what is desirable i mean if you paid lots and lots of attention to what you desire you'll get tempted more and more right it doesn't i don't get the vibe that it it means just denying your desires it means not putting undue attention onto them therefore in governing the people the sage empties their minds but fills their bellies well you want your basic needs filled because without your basic needs it's your basic needs that you pay attention to but with your basic needs provided for you are not going to be on survival mode so much and so you can concern yourself with other things um yeah well free from desire yeah i can get that but innocent of knowledge hmm knowledge isn't always beneficial it can wisdom is more beneficial than knowledge with knowledge is useful but knowledge that is clung to by the ego can definitely be more of a problem than a benefit um and there's and you can have all the knowledge in the world but if you're not present like it's better to be present and ignorant than knowledgeable and not present otherwise all you're doing is like you've got stuff you've memorized i mean like well done fantastic are you happy though are you present though are you present are you flowing you know do that which consists of taking no action and order will prevail no action doesn't mean sitting there staring at a wall right <laughs> i interpret it as you're not pushing yourself making yourself you're just blowing right it's perhaps more playful you know children they and it, they recognize that life is all a game right that's why they're always playing because it's all a game to them right they recognize that it's all make pretend that's why all they do is make pretend um and it's just that what we do is we pretend that we're not pretending <laughs> and then we forget that we're pretending that we're not pretending and so we're serious about pretending <laughs> and then it's just like, like like all this pretended bullshit that we've come up with is like no it's very serious we must follow the rules that we came up with as a joke or something <laughs> like it's like fucking what is it um you know that guy came up with this uh, religion that scientology was come up with as a like as a joke right and now it's this thing that the followers of scientology like it's this very serious business and that's like a representation of like this world we've made all these rules and regulations and restrictions and 
on a soul level, we all know this whole thing is a dream within a dream, a play, a game. Children know this because they're like, they, they haven't been like here as long. They've been, they were in the presence that we're in when we we're in the afterlife, like less time ago. They're not as conditioned, right? So the childlike state of, um, we're not pushing yourself to do anything in particular, not making yourself doing it, but just, wow. You see action in the sense is like action, we're doing this instead of just like the doing that isn't anything in particular done. Right? Then order prevails. You know, it might seem chaotic, but is it? You could say, be chaotic and order prevails. <laughs> I don't know, like, it, it's a... There's actually a unity in there. It's non-duality. So it's not unordered. It's just that it's not... It's not lacking chaos and it's not lacking order. And it is more than those two things separately. It's chaos order. It's unity, it's presence. Okay, so. Hmm. The way is empty, yet use, the way is empty, yet use will not drain it. Deep it is, like the ancestor of the myriad creatures. Blunt the sharpness, untangle the knots, soften the glare, yet your wheels, let your wheels move only along old ruts. Deeply visible, it only seems as though it were there. I know not whose son it is. It images the forefather of God. Hmm. Uh, this footnote here saying the word in the text meaning full has amended to one meaning empty, yet use will never drain it, yet it cannot be exhausted by use. Yet use will not drain it. Um, well, I'm not sure what to make of that, but the way is empty that use will not drain it. Hmm. It's... It's like the way doesn't need to be replenished. For it is what replenishes. Um, 
It is the nameless. Um, deep, like the ancestor of the mirror creatures, mirror of creatures. Uh, what preceded that? Well, everything really comes from the nameless, doesn't it? So like the nameless. Blunt, you see, like the ancestor that's kind of indirectly referring to the nameless without naming it, right? Blunt, the sharpness. Now it seems like, oh, okay, that's contradictory, that's bullshit. But it's, it's a subtle unison of opposites framed as a duality. Untangle the knots. That's more clear because it's a verb. The way untangles. What knots? I would say the ego knots. All these complicated strings all tied together, all knotted together, like into a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> and the way it's just like flowing and it all just sort of unravels somehow. Let your wheels move along old ruts. Hmm. Old ruts. I'm not sure what to make of that, but maybe don't make yourself push yourself just let your action flow rather than proactively trying to like forge new ruts ahead of you or no it's like you're not trying to make the rail it's like if you're a train it's like you're not gonna be making the path ahead of you before you make just just go <laughs> right uh, although ruts is just like the bits inside the wheel, right? So, ah, whatever, right? Darkness, darkly visible, contradictory, but uni unified. Um, darkly visible, it only seems as if it were there. I know not who Sonnet is. Hmm. Whose son the way is, who knows? It images the forefather of God. The way images the forefather of God. Okay. That may, that comes to mind is the idea that there's the I am presence that we are, and there's the I am that is all that is. And the I am that we are is the son of the father and the father is all that is. And this is, I suppose when I'm speaking like that, that's, um, that's a uh, course in miracles speaking, right? Um, and technically what is in, what's the connection? between what's the connection between us and all that is or the son and the father is Christ what is Christ is it not the iron presence kind of 
is not the way. So being, being in line with highest consciousness is the same thing as being in line with the way. I might be off there, but it feels right. So following the way is being connected and in harmony with all that is. Which is why I see the way as the same as Christ. Also in the Course of Miracles, if I remember correctly, it is said that what we call the Christ consciousness preceded Jesus of Nazareth. So, and it originated from those souls coming down to help us out originally. So, I'm not sure if that's accurate or not, but the idea is that it's almost like it's the spirit of the wonder. Hmm, I'll make that on a tangent. It's basically, wait, it's just a way. Or the nameless, whatever. Anyway, um, I hope you found this interesting. Uh, I feel like I've done enough of the main text, but there was interesting stuff in the introduction, uh, stuff I agreed with, stuff I didn't. Um, and, I, and I do feel like it provides a, a good context for what's to follow. And um, so, yeah, so that's episode one. And... Um, Yeah, so it's midday here. That's probably a good time for me to finish as well. I don't really miss stuff on after this. So yeah, um, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, me beginning my first episode of a reading of Tao Te Ching, which I'm probably mispronouncing. And I don't know what else to say, so um, bye for now.